Thank you, Tom, for praying and reading the scriptures for us. We've got a week full of ministry ahead of us this week. Uh, vacation Bible school starting this week. Uh, look for a good time, a fellowship, and ministry together. Our Czech team, the brave men and women from Cornerstone, uh, ministering halfway around the world. They're returning this Friday. And thus ends our summer of missions. And then this uh, week from yesterday, this week, our beloved brother, where is he? Where's Joe? Is Joe here today? Okay, Joe and Elaine, I guess you guys are getting married next week. So it's going to be a very, very blessed, blessed week. I'm sure, as with most of you, you've been following the Olympics. My wife and I have on the edge of our seats watching just these competitors, you know, race and swim and run. We're sitting there with our bags of popcorn and dark chocolate and and Diet Cokes and soaking it all in, just enjoying them. Exert sinuously for the prize. Past week, was watching the all-around gymnastics, men's gymnastics, and watching Paul Ham, the two South Koreans, go at it. My heart was torn, you know. (laughs) My mind and my, you know, body was for Paul Ham, but... My blood, you know, I'm South Korean by blood, you know, my heart was with Mr. Kim and Mr. Yang, um, I think. And when Paul Ham, he was top three and on the vault, I mean, I've never seen a guy in the history of Olympics do so poorly. I mean, he, he fell off the platform and landed on his back behind on one of the referees. And it was just so heart-wrenching. He went from top three to 12th, and I was like, I'm South Korean. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what's going on, Paul? And I was just, you know, just half angry, half heartbroken, a little bit, you know, joyous for the South Koreans. And then for him in the high bar, he just did what, 9.8 something, and for him to claim the gold, and when he was standing on the platform and the wreath, that's what Paul is talking about, and for, or Peter, First Peter 5, the Stephanos. It's not the diadem, the crown that a king receives out of inheritance. It is the earned wreath, the Stephanos, that the Grecian games that they gave to the victors. Same thing. They were, he had it on his head, and they were singing, the, they were playing the national anthem, and he was mouthing the words, and just the pride that he exerted in his, in his face, and, the, and just how he, how well he represented USA, and the pride that we all felt in his achievement. And what a glorious thing, what a praiseworthy thing. And I was uh, thinking about one day how we will stand before the Lord, surrounded by all the cloud of witnesses, and it will be our opportunity to receive praise from our King, from our Lord and our Master, God Himself. And the Bible is replete with that kind of visual picture of receiving rewards from God. And our missionary pastor, Peter Smith, during the retreat, he talked about that in one of his sermons, and rightfully so, because the New Testament has many things to say about receiving rewards from God. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Instead of being sorrowful or grieving, you should rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5.44 Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because if you love them, you will receive reward in heaven. 
Matthew 6, 1, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward in heaven. And of course, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That God Himself will give us a Stephanos, a crown, a wreath on our heads. And this crown does not wither away or fade. It's not, does not perish. It's not temporal. But it's eternal. And this reward reveals the pleasure of God. How we have represented Christ while we lived here on earth. So I want to just talk about that this morning. I study 1 Corinthians 3, a few verses in chapter 4. And just study what the Bible has to say about how to receive rewards from God. And to do that, we will look at four marks of carnality. Four marks, four signs that you will not receive crowns. And three marks, three criteria to receive rewards from God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Here Paul is addressing the worst kind of church. Really, the worst kind. Because though they're unspiritual, Paul says carnal, they're infantile in their faith. They're the worst kind because they think they're spiritual. They think they are mature. They have a high and lofty view of themselves. And that's the worst kind. And I've, I've ministered to churches like this. It is the most difficult thing. Like They know everything. They've heard everything. Um, they've been everywhere. And they've heard from the great teachers of Scripture. So why would they listen to James Shin? What is he going to tell me that I don't already know? Well, well, that tells us that they are not spiritual, they are not mature, that they have not achieved um, spirituality in the truest sense. And so Paul addresses them and he says, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual. I cannot. But I, I address you as worldly, carnal, mere infants in Christ. You read that verse 1. And you sense right away in the Apostle Paul there's a sense of frustration and a sense of anguish as he addresses them. He is clearly broken by their lack of spiritual progress and maturity. He is heartbroken. As a junior pastor, I can definitely understand what Paul is going through. I can understand and empathize with his spiritual frustration because that's the frustration that I experience time to time. My frustration as a pastor is not that People don't respond to the gospel. It is not that people don't go to the mission field. You know, really, I spent several days this past week with nine other pastors, and they were sharing with me their heartaches of ministry, and I really could not empathize with them because I'm not discouraged by any personal attacks. I mean, Cornerstone so far has been really good. to, To my knowledge, no one has criticized me. No one has attacked me personally or my wife or family. Not yet anyways. But even if that happened... 
I don't know, it happened in other contexts. It doesn't really bother me. It doesn't really discourage me or sadden me. What grieves me the most is that believers are perpetual spiritual infants. That's the most just heart-wrenching thing. Lack of maturity in Christ. There's a fear in my heart that they'll remain infants for the rest of their lives. Christians remaining infants, behaving, acting, and making infantile decisions. Bob and I talk about this all the time. And that's a fear for our children, right? The parents out there, you know? It's a fear. What if, you know, our child is forever in diapers or forever, like, you know, drinking out of a bottle or forever, like, you know, just needing help like this. And we're encouraged when they can crawl and stand and walk and feed themselves and talk and, and make their beds and clean up after themselves. We're encouraged, right? Well, how, how discouraged would you get if your children never grow up beyond that? Well, spiritually, the same thing. And that is what Paul cannot comprehend about these believers. His words are bold and straightforward. And he says, I cannot talk to you as spiritual. I talk to you as carnal, as infants in Christ. Paul is not accepting their carnality as a phase that they're going through. That is what all Christians go through. They go through a period of rebellion, a period of anger at God, a period of regression. No, Paul says that is not acceptable. That is not normal. That is not Christianity. Because when Christ saves a man from sin, He does so not just positionally, but practically as well. He saves the whole man. And it is normal for a Christian, just like with a child, to grow in their walk. But because they are not, Paul is saying there is something wrong with you and it's not genetic. It is not hereditary. It is your carnality. You're acting worldly. There is sin in the midst. There is sin in your life. Therefore, he is confronting them. They are being inconsistent with their renewed state as Christians. They are born again. The old is gone. The new creation has come. And yet, they are still acting carnal. They are still acting fleshly according to the world. Therefore, He is confronting them. That is their problem. And what's worse, they think that they are pneumaticoids, spiritual. They are abounding in spiritual gifts. They have visions and dreams and they're speaking in tongues, prophesying, doing all kinds of, you know, accepting immorality in the church in the name of tolerance and love, all these things. And they think that they're spiritual. And Paul says, no, you're not. And if you think more of this will, will garner reward in heaven, you are sorely mistaken. He highlights four signs, four marks of their carnality, Four fruits of their behavior and attitudes that reveal that they're spiritual infants. Maybe they're still in the womb. I mean, that's how young they are. That they are not mature, that they are spiritual babies. And maybe these are good markers for us. That for all of us here, we think we're mature. We think we're wow, spiritual. Maybe we need to go through these four, four things and take a cold, hard look at ourselves. Cold hard look at where we're at. The first mark of carnality is that they're not ready for solid food. They're not ready for solid food. 
I gave you milk, verse 2, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Paul here is not contrasting solid food and milk. They're the same substance in essence. An infant, you give milk. And at about a year old, maybe a little before that, you start giving them Cheerios, right? You start giving them solid food. They're ready for solid food. Paul is talking about the difference in understanding of the two same substance. Different form, but same substance. A young believer has a shallow understanding of doctrine. A basic, simplistic understanding of the gospel. And yet, as they're reared in the Word of God, reared in the Scriptures, reared in doctrine, their hearts are enlarged, their mind expanded, their capacity increased, where they desire more than just milk. They want more of God's Word. They want to understand the depth and breadth and width of the Word of God. And they want deep theology, a deeper understanding of the Scriptures. That's a natural progression for all believers. But here, these believers, they still were not ready for, for solid food spiritually. They're still discontent with milk. It's like you know, after communion, we go out to, you know, Tony Roma's or we go to Chili's and we're all ordering ribs and we go to claim jumpers and we, we order the Mahai sandwich or something with a mother load and then one of the brothers takes out his bottle of milk and he starts, you know, taking that down. Or another guy takes another gal, he starts Gerber's, you know, banana and strawberry and starts mixing it up and we're like, what's wrong? I mean, have some ribs, you know, have some mother load sandwich here, meatloaf and they're like just taking a little bit of that Gerber baby food. That would not be right. Same thing for the believers here. That is what Paul is saying. They were infants, and they're still infants, not ready for solid food. Why? Why? What's the reason for this? How come they have not grown in their Christian faith? And this is important. The context tells us the reason for their lack of maturity is because they have yet to completely submit to the authority of the Word of God. They have not come to the point or they have submitted themselves wholly to the wisdom of the Scriptures. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul is in the city of Corinth, a city of secular philosophy, secular uh, gods and, and, and pagan religions, and they were trying to syncretize Christianity with all these secular philosophies. And Paul confronts them in chapters 1 and 2 about the foolishness of God, how it's wise in the wisdom of the world, how they're antithetical to one another. The reason the natural man rejects the word, word of God is because they're foolishness to him. They're blind. Therefore, as Christians, I came to you to preach Christ alone because that is the only source of salvation and spiritual maturity. And yet these believers have yet to come to the point where they have committed wholly in their lives to the Scriptures. I believe there comes, there comes a time, a pivotal time in each believer's life where they make that turn. For some, it happens at the point of salvation. At some, it happens a few months down the road. Some, for some, sadly, it takes years. or They never get to it. Where they say, the Word of God is true. It is my authority. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is all I need for salvation and sanctification. 
It is how I will live my life. It is my authority. From this point on, I will be serious about the Word of God. I will study it out of desperation. As a man searches for gold and silver, with that mindset, I will study the Scriptures. Until a believer comes to that point, he or she will remain an infant in Christ, not ready for solid food. At that point, they will set aside philosophy. They will set aside psychology, sociology. I have here, and I crossed it out, but I'll say, say it. They will set aside Oprah Winfrey, right? They will set aside, if they have marital issues, they won't read Dr. Phil, right? They won't read Men Are From Mars. No, they will read Proverbs. They will read Song of Solomon. When they have parental issues, they won't look to psychology or sociology. They won't look to Young and Skinner. No, they will look to Proverbs, Psalms, Ephesians, Colossians. They'll look to the Word of God. That is the critical component to genuine Christianity. And without that, they will remain infants, like infants of Ephesians 4.14, who are tossed back and forth by the waves. They are blown here, tossed there by every wind of teaching, every wind of doctrine that comes around the corner that they are victims of. And they have no discernment. They have no wisdom. They have no understanding. They are like children, vulnerable to, to, to being hurt. Everything is, is dangerous for them because they have no maturity. Paul says, the first mark of carnality is you're not yet ready for solid food. Secondly, second mark is worldliness. <clears throat> in thought and in action, verse 3, Paul says, you are still worldly. You have worldly priorities, twisted values. Another, Greek, another translation from the Greek is fleshly. And their worldliness is evidenced by two things. Verse 3, there's jealousy and quarreling. That's a clear sign that their mentality is worldly. Right? Jealousy is the attitude. Quarreling is the infighting. And the result is division. And the core reason for quarreling and jealousy is what? Self-centeredness. All they, they just care about themselves. The world revolves around them. The church revolves around them. Life revolves around them. And their, their first and last thought is about their needs, their wants, their desires, and no concern over, over anyone's. Therefore, they're quarreling and they're jealous. The heart is self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is a cancer to a Christian. It's a cancer to the church. It is destructive. It is not a harmless evil. It corrupts morals. It severs relationships. It produces callousness to the Word of God. It destroys the prayer life. Destroys it. It undermines right doctrine by producing a wrong life. I mean, how many churches have split because of self-centeredness? How many Christian relationships have been broken and severed and permanently damaged? Why? Because two or three or four people have chosen to be selfish. How many times have the Church of Christ been smeared and shamed? We've been mocked in the side of the world all because a dumb thing like self-centeredness that has produced jealousy, quarreling. Paul says, obviously, you're not mature. Yes, I know you're speaking in tongues. Yes, I know you're prophesying. And yes, I know you're doing all these things. But come on. Look at your relationships. 
Look at the jealousy and the quarreling that is rampant in this quote-unquote body of Christ. You can't tell me you're mature. You can't tell me you're spiritual. The third mark, third evidence of their carnality is that they are followers of men, followers of personality, not followers of Christ. Verse 4, one says, I follow Paul. Another says, oh, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. He, those are in quotation marks. He is quoting what they are saying. Like someone actually says in the church, me, I'm a follower of Paul. And someone else has said, no, me, Apollos is my teacher. Oh, me, I, I follow Peter, Cephas. Such statements reveal that they have a totally inadequate understanding of Christian ministry. They are boasting in their individual teachers as though they belong to them in some way. They are siding with the leaders in the church as if they're on different teams. There's a competition going on. There is some kind of division in the body of Christ. Their boast was not. Their banner was not for Christ. Their banner was Paul, Cephas, men's names. They are followers of men, not of God. Therefore, they were causing division in the church. They are following not truth, but following personalities. They have misplaced loyalties to people rather than to Christ. And then the final sign is, from this, we see that it is a lack of faith, no true faith. That they see the work of God through human eyes rather than eyes of faith. Because Paul writes, verse 5, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul had no grand delusions of grandeur. He didn't assign to himself any significance in God's work. It's terribly humbling. If anyone had the right to boast of himself, to pump himself up, it was the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I understand. You know, they're following me. You know, I am the Apostle Paul. Okay, I understand that. But who is Cephas, you know? Who is Apollos? Come on. I mean, he had that right. But what does he say? He says, what is Paul? That you're following Paul. And he says, we are only servants. We're diakonos. We are waiters. You know, you go to a restaurant, someone serves you food, you give them 10 to 20%. Right? That's me. I'm a waiter for Christ. Why are you boasting? That's my waiter. Right? Paul, he serves me, I give him a tip. Right? What is going on? Who is Paul? We're only slaves of the Lord assigned to this task by God. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't you see that God is doing it all? It is not us. It is God working through us. We are just jars of clay. We're Tupperware. The treasure is what is inside of us. That is the value. That we're just clay pots that holds this treasure. We need to see the church of Christ in that way. People might see Cornerstone and they might say, oh, that's James Shin. Or they might look at Grace Community and say, oh, that's uh, uh, John MacArthur. Or East Bay Baptist say John Shim. That's wrong. That's not true at all. I mean, we can say Microsoft is what it is because of Bill Gates. I mean, we can say, you know, Walmart is because of Sam Walton, Lakers because of whatever, Shaq or Kobe. You can say that because that's not the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of God, all Christians, all leaders, all pastors, missionaries, Sunday school teachers, 
We are just slaves. We are just servants. We are nothing. God is the cause for all growth. All glory should go to God alone. I mean, isn't that awesome? Isn't that true? I mean, all you flock leaders who are kind of, you know, all you small group leaders, VBS is coming up. You're like, wow, I have great responsibility. And, you know, and there's a sense of, sense of inadequacy. Can I do this? We have to have a right understanding of ourselves. We shouldn't worry. We're, we're waiters. We're servants. We're nothing. We serve Christ. He does it all. We need to minister as ministers. See our ministry from the eyes of faith, not lack of faith. You know, several years ago, for Christmas, I got Serena a special present, a movie that meant a lot to me when I was younger. A movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Have you seen that? <laughs> the main point of the movie is how pivotal each person's life is to others. The main character is George Bailey. And he gets the opportunity to see what life would be like if he were never born. And, you know, we know the story, right? His friends are all either dead, sick, or insane, in prison, or lonely, all because George Bailey never existed. And at the end, the worst thing of all is his wife. What is she? She's a librarian, right? <laughs> she's an old maid, and she's a librarian. Oh, no, how devastating, right? <laughs> so... He says, wow, I want to live. I want to go back to my life. I don't want to have a pity party anymore. And, and then the whole the theme of the movie is, it's a wonderful life. Right? It is a wonderful life. Look at all that I did. Right? Well, is that what's going to happen to us after we die? You know, an angel is going to come to us and say, wow, you know, look at all that you did. Your work, your sacrifice, life they touch. Oh, James Shen, if you hadn't lived, you know, Jin would have been a Jehovah's Witness. You know? <laughs> Joe Jung would still, I don't know, be, have a foul mouth living in the world. And <laughs> Elaine Cho would be a pastor of a church. And <laughs> I mean, is that what we're going to say? I'm changed. You saved Elaine from pastoral ministry. Praise God. No. After our lives, we'll say, God is wonderful. Right? We'll say, God did it all. Man, we did nothing. God is the author and the perfecter. God is the Alpha and Omega. God did everything. God is wonderful. That is what Paul is saying. Because they saw ministry from a human perspective, they were following men. Paul says it's the final sign of their carnality. He says, as a servant, he doesn't deserve or want any praise and honor. He warns them of these four signs of carnality. And then from that, from warning and rebuke, he turns to a positive motivation, that they should seek their own reward. They should seek reward from God. And we should beat and buffet our bodies. We should strain ourselves. We should give our lives. Like these Olympic athletes, they, they train night and day. They sacrifice their relationships, they forego food and comfort to the world for that one moment to excel in an event and to stand on that platform and to wear that wreath, to receive that medal and to give a testimony of their achievements and to represent their country. They give their lives to that one moment. He says Christians should put aside these carnality, put aside the infant ways, 
and strive to represent Christ in this way. For that moment, you'll receive reward from Christ. And that is the thrust of Paul's point. He is calling believers to maturity. He is calling them to faithfulness because there will be an evaluation for believers. There will be a judgment for believers. Like judges will sit and rate you. And they'll either give you a medal, give you a reward, or you'll receive nothing. Right? There's no condemnation, Romans 8.1. Christians, we don't, there's no judgment of punishment. But it's either we get nothing or we get a reward. The Paul says, put outside these things that you will receive rewards from God. Now, to get these rewards, he goes on to verse 6, there are strict requirements. You must run the race marked out for you. You can't just run aimlessly. Like, like a boxing match. You can't just pick anyone out of the crowd and start punching him and you get a gold medal. No. There is, there is like you know, rules to the games. Likewise, in Christianity, there are strict requirements, guidelines on how you are to fight how you are to run to receive rewards from God. And then he gives three guidelines, three criteria. First criterion is rewarded according to the labor. Rewarded according to the labor. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Verse 8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his labor. To his labor. Highlight that. Underline that. God rewards on the basis of labor, not results. Not success. God rewards according to the effort given. The result is up to God because God causes the growth. So if God chooses not to, that is not our responsibility. Our reward is not based upon the score. Our reward is based upon the effort that we put in. God judges a person's life, family, ministry, not based upon its influence, income, or number, or the size. That's God's responsibility. That's His job. Our reward is based upon our work, our labor. Paul goes on. To point two, and he says, believers will be rewarded according to what is left. So first is work, second is according to what is left. He says, verse nine, we are God's workers, you are God's field, God's building. Verse ten, he says, and therefore, each one, we should be careful, we should take note on how we're going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid the foundation of salvation, this, this place, this lot. So it's you and I, our job to build upon this foundation. And we need to be careful how we build, because according to what materials we use, we'll receive a reward or we will not receive rewards. We should be careful on what materials we use. Verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones... And then the second type of material is wood, hay, or straw. He contrasts these two different types of materials to build. Gold, silver, precious stones. And there's a low 99 cent quality materials, wood, hay, or straw. He says, you need to be careful how you build. Now, what do these materials, what do they represent? They do not represent 
talent, giftedness, or wealth. They do not represent the, even the effort with the immediate context that helps us understand that Paul is contrasting building with the wisdom of God and building with the wisdom of the world. Gold, silver, precious stones built, represents the word of God, the wisdom of God. Wood, hay, straw represents the wisdom of this world. Two opposing systems of faith. So you can build your Christian life with wood, hay, or straw, with uh, secular philosophies, with pragmatism, with mysticism, right? whatever works, whatever feels good. You can build your family based upon this, raising your children. You can build it upon Proverbs or psychology. You can build your church, your ministry, based on, is it biblical? What does the Bible say? Or what works? What makes people happy? What will draw a crowd? Paul says, it makes a world of difference what you use to build your Christian life to build your family, to build the ministry of Christ. Because the judgment that is to come of believers, the judgment of fire, verse 13, it will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, then he will receive his reward, verse 14. So for all believers, there is no condemnation, but there is a judgment of reward, believers' judgment of fire. As we go to the fire, if we built it with gold, silver, precious stones, everything will stand. But if we build part of it with wood, hay, or straw, that'll be burnt up. It'll be gone. If our whole Christian life, and that's a definite possibility. I mean, the inconsistent Christian, they believe in the gospel, but apart from the gospel, it's all pragmatism. It's all secular philosophy. It's all worldliness. It's all mysticism. It's intuition, emotions, feeling, gut, you know, all those things. Then, yeah, they'll build, but when tested through fire, it'll all burn up because it was not of God. And so they're saved as escaping through the fire. They go to heaven, but they don't represent any pleasure to God. They don't glorify Christ because they built with the world rather than from God. So Paul says, be careful how you build. So first is labor, second is material, third is found in the next chapter, verses 3 through 5. And here's a third criterion for reward. It is right motivation. Right motivation. Now, the Corinthians, you know, they were very childish. (laughs) Very, very childish. They, they attack Paul from various angles. But one attack that hurt the most was they attacked Paul's motivation. They said, Paul, you're ministering to us not because you love God, not because you love money, not because you love God or you love us, but you're ministering to us because you love money. You're motivated by greed. That's hitting below the belt, right? I mean, that's... The, how, how, can, how can you defend yourself, right? How, do you, how does anyone defend? What, I mean, here's Paul who loves the church, loves Christ, and they say, you're doing this for wrong motivations. So Paul says, okay, you know, what do I say? Verse 3, 
he cares in a sense, but he says, in a sense, he doesn't. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent because we can't even judge our own consciences, right? I mean, Hitler had a clear conscience. Pol Pot in the jungles of Cambodia, when they caught up with him, he said, I have a clear conscience. Everybody does, right what is, does what is right in his own eyes. I mean, everybody has a clear conscience. I mean, that's because we're sinners. So Paul says, I have a clear conscience, but that's not the judge, because my conscience is tainted by sin. He says in verse 5, the Lord judges me. The Lord. And he's, he's ready for that day of evaluation, tested by fire. And he knows the Lord will be my defendant. The Lord will be my advocate. And on that day, God will make it equal. God will set everything right. And God will reveal everything. And what will He reveal? Verse 5, He says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Right? Wait until the, the final accountant, the IRS agent, you know, He goes through the books. And on that day, Christ will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And what is hidden in darkness the motivation of Christians in their ministry. And he, Christ Himself will what? Expose what? He will expose the motivation of men's heart. And at that time, there will be no punishment, there will be no rebuke, no condemnation. No believers don't go through that. But there will be reward. At that time, each will receive His praise from God. That's great, isn't it? You know, a popular pastime of all Christians is evaluating pastors, right? I know you guys do this, you know, during lunch, drive home, Monday afternoon, you know, we talk about pastors, talk about their doctrine, education, their influence, their sense of humor or lack thereof, you know, whatever. We talk about them and we criticize them, but we can never know, we cannot never rightly determine a pastor's motivation for ministry. Not with certainty, not with accuracy. We can know it when it's wrong, right? It's obvious when someone steals money. Oh, wrong motivation, right? But you can never know if it's right. Does that make sense? You can know when it's wrong, but you can never know if it's right. Oh, likewise, not just pastors, but for all Christians. I have no idea why you came to church this morning. I have no idea. I have no idea why you give offering to the church why you pray, why you read the Bible, why those people, eight people in missions, I don't know why they went to Czech Republic, I don't know, I have no idea. So on and so on, why, why we are hospitable, why we love one another, we cannot know, but we will know on that day. And I believe that day we'll be surprised. We'll be like, what? We'll be shocked. It'll be like a twist at the end of a good movie. We'll be shocked to find out that many popular, influential, notable Christian leaders, Church Universal, even at Cornerstone, might receive very little reward or none at all because Christ exposes, you know what? They're motivated for themselves. They're motivated. They were not motivated for the glory of God. And then we will find that a housewife a woman who stayed home and took care of kids and loved the Lord and raised godly children, 
or a deacon of a small church in Nebraska, or no name, uneducated missionary that no one's ever heard of. No one's ever heard of. He or she is brought to the front, brought to the platform, and Christ puts that wreath on and lavishes reward upon this person that nobody knows. Who is this guy? Who is this girl? That will be a marvelous day when we see many dear saints completely unknown to the world they, were, they will receive their reward from God because they are motivated by God's glory alone. First Corinthians 10.31 That is why Paul said, whatever you do, you eat and drink, do it all for the glory of God. If that's your motivation, on that final day, you'll receive your reward in heaven. You know, as we see the last week of Olympics and we see that we receive the earthly reward, may it motivate us May it remind us of the great day of reward in heaven. And may God find us faithful. May God find us faithful and say to each and every one of us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I did not evaluate you based upon your influence, upon the success or result. I evaluate you purely because of your labor, personal sacrifice. I evaluate you based upon the materials you used and based upon motivation. See, then all of us can receive rewards based upon those three criteria, right? If it's based upon giftedness, based upon education or talent, I mean, forget it, you know, (laughs) I'll sit in the back row. But if it's based upon those three criteria, I think all of us can say, you know what? I I can receive rewards. I can work hard. I can use the Bible alone. And I can have a right motivation for my life, family, and ministry. Therefore, may all of us strive, fight the good fight, run a great race, and be prepared to hear those words, well done, a good and faithful servant. Our Father, what a beautiful picture. And to know that that picture is a glimpse of the reality of that day. And we'll be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, Christian saints throughout history, and the elect angels surrounding this great stadium. And you will call us forward, and you will reward your people according to their labor, according to the material, according to their motivation. What a wonderful day that will be. Oh, Lord. May that inspire us, challenge, and motivate us this morning to lay aside every encumbrance, to lay aside every sin that entangles, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, may we exhort ourselves and give ourselves fully to this race for Christ and the Lord. For Christ and Christ alone. In your name we pray. Amen.